Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is one of the most iconic voices of sports. You name it, he's done it. Whether it's college football, Major League Baseball, college basketball, the USFL, NASCAR, Wimbledon, the Super Bowl, five Olympics, as well as the classic wide world of sports. He was the first program host on New York Sports Talk Radio, WFAN, when it began operations on July 1st, 1987. He's the voice, was the voice of HBO Boxing for over three decades, where he called some of the biggest fights in the history of the sport. From the biggest upset in heavyweight championship history, Mike Tyson versus Buster Douglas, to the stirring trilogies between Evander Holyfield, Riddick Bowe, Arturo Gatti and Mickey Ward to the remarkable triumph of 45-year-old George Foreman over Michael Moore in 1994 to the long-awaited showdown between Lennox Lewis and Mike Tyson to the prolific confrontation between Oscar De La Hoya and Floyd Merriweather. It is a thrill to welcome a true broadcast legend, three-time Emmy winner, a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and the new lead play-by-play voice for the Triller Fight Club, the one and only Jim Lampley. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it, and that's uh, a rather elaborate introduction. Uh, <laughs> but, but yes, it, it suggests that I've been around a long time, and that's certainly true. <laughs> so, uh, saying a long time, back in 1970, before before we ever heard of Star Search, American Idol, America's Got Talent, ABC Sports developed a concept for a college-age reporter for NCAA games and launched a nationwide talent hunt to recruit a typical college student for the job. 16 campuses, 432 applicants. You were originally screened out because of your age and you were in grad school, not undergrad, but it led to a position nonetheless. Can you tell us about the first job in the programming planning department at ABC? Well, uh, when they interviewed the 432 people around the country trying to find quote, the face and voice of the American college student. At the very first screening interview, um, one of the three people who had come out on the road to do that screening asked me, what do you think of this idea? And for a variety of reasons, uh, I was not feeling really positive about the whole thing. And I said, I think it's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And he said, what do you mean it's the dumbest idea you've ever heard? (laughs) I said, you're going to go around the country and interview 400-some-odd people for five or six minutes. Uh, And on that basis, you're going to choose a small number who would be finalists to be the, quote, face and voice of the American college student. It's absurd, and it's an insult to all of us. So I was screened out of the uh, the college-age reporter process, and I was later shown the evaluation form on which Dick Ebersole, who was Runeology's assistant at the time, wrote alienated, antagonistic, abrasive, uh, asshole. Uh, and <laughs> it, it later, became, later became known in the college football production truck as the four A's. Uh, you know, is he wearing the four A's today, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they used all of the resumes from that process to interview people for a variety of other jobs. And I went through a series of trips to New York and met a lot of people in the division and eventually accepted a job 
and uh, this was in in late July when I accepted a job to go to work in program planning and learn how to buy the rights for um, crazy events on ABC's Wide World of Sports. And then it was August, a few weeks later, when Dick Ebersol reached me at a beach house on the coast of North Carolina and said, well, we've, we've kind of changed our evaluation approach and we're, you know, looking to uh, sort of change course on the college football thing. And would you go and do uh, a videotape audition? And I, you know, once again, wearing the four A's, I said, Dick, I blew all that off a long time ago. I'm not really interested in your idea. I am so excited about going to work in program planning. That dovetails with everything I've done in graduate school at uh, the University of North Carolina. And he said, I don't think you're hearing me very well. Rune wants you to do an audition, referring to Rune Arledge, the, uh, you know, exalted president of the division at that time. And uh, at the end of the day, Dick made it very clear that I didn't really have that much choice in the matter. Uh, Rune was in charge of program planning, too. So I, you know, I, if I wanted any chance to do anything at ABC Sports, I should get on a plane and go do the audition. And I did. Uh, and uh, unbelievably enough, they sent me to interview a former University of Miami quarterback who was now in his fourth different professional league and pretty much at the end of the rope. Guy's name was George Myra. <laughs> I had I had been a George Myra idolator while in junior high school in Miami. I was probably the only person left in the country who had a number 10 George Myra Miami jersey hanging in my closet at the time. So, you know, I was kind of LMAO. As I went down to Birmingham to do that interview, I could imagine somebody sitting in a tape room in New York and looking at this and saying, oh, my God, look at all the research he did about George Myra. This is amazing. <laughs> and, of course, I didn't have to do any research at all. I, I probably knew as much about George Myra as anyone in his family uh, at that moment. And um, so it was a, you know, a bizarre and spectacular um, lucky break that allowed me to become one of the two choices uh, to be the first people ever to stand on the sidelines with a camera and a microphone. And if you, you know, if you're a normal aged person, if you're in your 30s or your 40s and you watch sports, you've seen somebody on the sideline with a camera and a microphone all your life. Uh, you have to be my age uh, to to be to recognize that that was a dramatic step forward and a huge innovation in 1974 when it took place. Absolutely. And it's interesting also the, the first time they go down on the field and it kind of dovetails later to what happens with Foreman. It's a, you know, a player in your pregame interview tells you a certain thing's going to happen and it happens. So it, it's so cool the way things come around. But so after that one season of doing that, you're offered a job on one of the most iconic sports shows ever, ABC's Wide World of Sports. And in reading some of the articles about you, that's not too bad for a guy that only a few years earlier's life goal was to be the bartender at the shack on Rosemary Street. Obviously, you had some great mentors that helped you get to that point so early in your career. How important were Wesley Wallace, Bob Holiday, and Jim Havner to that point in your life? Wow, it's interesting that you know those names. Uh, Wesley Wallace was uh, not only the... Uh, 
the acting chairman of the radio television uh, motion pictures department in North Carolina, but he was also the uh, general secretary of the National Association of Broadcasting chapter in North Carolina, and he basically ran broadcasting in North Carolina. Bob Holiday was my predecessor doing a lot of gigs that I wound up later doing pregame and postgame shows on the University of North Carolina uh, football and basketball radio networks and WUNC-TV uh, sports reporting and stuff like that. And he was the person who urged me, um, you know, uh, come come follow me around do these things that I've been doing. I'm, I'm going to go do something else. You should take over. At the end of the day, if there were justice in the universe, Bob Holiday should have been the person who got the college-age reporter job and went on to a tremendous career in uh, network sports television. But uh, it was just an accident of sort of luck and timing that after he had shown me the way and, and put me into all those positions, I was the person who parlayed that into the uh, ABC Sports opportunity. It's unbelievable. Now, I have to admit, I've been a fan of yours my entire life. Um, you're kind of the soundtrack of my lifetime when it comes to sports because you've done everything. I will admit that I don't have a, a George Myra encyclopedic yo, yo, uh, reference for he, he you. He was the earlier day Ryan Leaf, Mark. Right. <laughs> no, I, no, I know who Myra <laughs> is, but I don't have as much knowledge that Jim did. But before we get into your history of boxing, I just wanted to touch on a few of some of the other events that you're associated you were part of one of the greatest moments for me in USA sports history. And what makes it even cooler for me is that while we're all sitting here watching the Miracle on Ice game, you're actually having dinner with Michael Ruzioni at the time. Um, can you tell us about that and, and what part you played in the 1980 coverage of the Miracle on Ice and the post-dinner, post-game well, interview with Mike? When I was, when I was first uh, sent to Lake Placid for the uh, Winter Olympics in 1980, uh, that I was originally scheduled to be the bobsled and luge play-by-play -play person. But as those games were coming into view, it was abundantly clear that there were a lot of um, political and organizational situations that would threaten the games and possibly threaten the Summer Olympics in Moscow. And I had a contract with the news division as well as with the sports division. Uh, and a, a very influential producer named Terry O'Neill went to Rune Arledge about two weeks before the Olympics and said, you know, you're going to be wasting Lampley on Bob's and Luge if you make him do that. He should be the uh, reporter for both the news and sports divisions covering when the State Department sends somebody to the IOC Executive Committee meeting to try to move, delay, or cancel the Moscow Games, uh, and when the local organizing committee fails to properly administer transportation and ticket distribution, all these things happened, and I spent the Olympics basically covering all those things as a news reporter, and, uh, and then on the Friday when the U.S.-Russia game was taking place at 5 p.m., by the way, uh, between our on-air time slots and uh, unseen by anybody in the USA who was not in the arena at that moment, uh, I was putting together a tape compendium of all the things I had done during those two weeks. And in those days, every ABC Sports facility had a red telephone uh, in it, and 
and everybody knew if you'd worked there for any period of time that the red phone was the Orledge phone. If you ever saw a red phone ring, that would be Rune Orledge calling because he was the only person who had connection to the red phone. So we were in a tape uh, edit bay putting together this piece. And there were three of us, me, uh, an associate producer and uh, a tape editor. And for the first time in my then six years at ABC Sports, I saw the red phone ring and the light went on and made a noise. And it was clear that the red phone was ringing. And we all looked at each other like, oh, my gosh, you know, we know what that is. Who's going to answer it? And I was the senior person. So I picked up the phone and uh, said, hello. Arledge said, Jim, is that you? I said, yes, it is. He said, go to the hockey arena and get in. I don't care what you're doing right now. You know, stop it. Bring an end to that. Go to the hockey arena and get in because uh, we're going to show this whole game on tape tonight. Uh, and if something unusual happens, we're going to need a an interview before we go off the air. So long story short, I managed to get in, even though I didn't have the right credential. I managed to get into the game. I stood on a camera platform with a famous folk singer named Harry Chapin, who had done uh, a concert in the Olympic Village the night before. We tried to be quiet enough and still enough not to bother the cameramen while we watched the last two periods of the hockey game. Uh, and then I ran downstairs to the uh, dressing room, to the, the locker room, to try to figure out if I could get an interview. And the nature of that beast was I was standing at one end of the hallway and the players were coming out and going toward the other end of the hallway. And the last player to come out of the locker room was Mike Ruzioni. We had the same agent and he was the only player on the team whom I had actually met. And as I yelled at him, I, he either recognized my voice or I don't know, I, 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 whatever it was that prompted him to respond to me, he came over Said, and I, you know, said, I told him what I need. I explained what we had to do, that we needed to have an interview going off the air that night. And he said, well, you know, I'd love to do that, but I'm going to dinner with Jim Craig and his dad. And I said, guess who's buying dinner? <laughs> uh, and so I wound up uh, in a small Italian restaurant with the two of them. And then we went out onto the street afterward with a camera in front of us and about 2,000 people assembled behind us in the street. Uh, and as we were getting ready to do the interview, while Jim McKay was going through the motions of throwing to me for the interview, I looked at Ruzioni and looked around at the people around us. And I said, you know what, Mike? If we had stood here last night and he said no one would have noticed. And that was true. Uh, and uh, and it's one of the most memorable things that ever happened in my career. And in the years since, I've run into Craig and Aruzioni several times at Olympic Committee functions and uh, reunions uh, of other things to do with the Olympics uh, and things of that nature. And every time I will you know, lean over at some point and say to Mike, you know, through the miracle of videotape, you are now the leading goal scorer in the history of <laughs> hockey. And Mike, and Mike smiles at me and says, keeps going in, doesn't it? And the, and the answer is yes, it does keep going in. And it's a miracle to this day. Yeah, it's an unbelievable story. The fact that you're having dinner with them while right. we're actually watching the games back here in the States. Your roots for boxing go way back. Your mom sits you in front of a TV on a Friday night, the night Ray Robinson fought Bobo um, Olsen on Friday night fights. But, you know, 
AJ and I uh, wrote a book about fathers and sons in baseball and you know how everyone remembers their first live baseball game. But for me, it's fascinating. Your first live boxing match that you went to is one of the most famous ever, and you're 14 years old. Can you tell our audience about you know the, the circumstances around that and, and let them know which fight that was? Well, uh, the fight was just recently commemorated, or at least the aftermath was commemorated in Regina King's terrific movie, One Night in Miami. It was February 25, 1964. Uh, it was the night that Cassius Clay, still using the name Cassius Clay, uh, knocked out Sonny Liston to become the youngest heavyweight champion ever at that time. Cassius Clay was my all-time boyhood hero. You couldn't have constructed, uh, even if you did it fictitiously, you could not have created a, a greater um, heroic icon for me, partially because I had grown up in the South in the circumstances of the late 50s and early 60s. And for whatever reason, my mother had always schooled me uh, that the cardinal sin was racism, that I would never feel or express or affiliate with anything that was racist in nature or intent. Uh, so for Cassius Clay to be using a slave name to taunt the white establishment in the way that he did, that's, you know, that's the greatest hero I could ever have had. Uh, and I was living in Southwest Miami at the moment when the fight with Liston was made. And I began saving lawn mowing and car washing money for months, uh, to buy a ticket to the fight. My mother took me to the Miami beach convention center and dropped me off. And I went in and, uh, and sat and watched the fight two days later, of course, uh, Cassius Clay announced that he was a follower of the Nation of Islam and was changing his name to Muhammad Ali. And that was an overwhelmingly disorienting and challenging sort of personal passage for me. I had to figure out uh, how I could maintain that affiliation given the change because it wasn't going to be portraying anymore exactly what I wanted him to portray. So he taught me a really huge personal lesson, which is no matter how big a fan I was, no matter how much I affiliated with his image, it was his, not mine. And it was his identity, not mine. And he had the right to do and be whatever he wanted to do and be. And I learned a giant lesson from him. Later, I learned my political position on the Vietnam War from him. He taught me a lot of things. Uh, and, and you don't expect with a hero like that that you're going to meet him. You're going to talk to him. He's going to babysit your daughter one day in New York while you go out and run errands. And all those things happened to me. And the other thing that happened to me is that on February 10, 1990, I called Mike Tyson's loss to Buster Douglas in Tokyo. And I very distinctly remember in the late rounds of Douglas Tyson or Tyson Douglas in Tokyo, sitting there at ringside with, with the microphone on and thinking to myself, oh my God, the very first live prize fight I ever attended was the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And now I am calling the fight which will replace it as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And, you know, at a moment like that, you absolutely have to acknowledge that destiny plays a role. You know, that in a strange way, I was sort of meant to be there. Uh, because of my previous personal experience. So that's the kind of life it's been.
I also did read that you have one regret about that fight, the fact that you never saved that ticket stub. And I actually went on a, a hunt to try and find one on eBay because I wanted to send it to you in hopes it would be like almost Bob Costas' Mickey Mantle you know, rookie card in his wallet that you'd have the – but I couldn't find it. But, AJ, you want to follow See, well, up on that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Tyson-Douglas fight and set it up for our audience. Uh, you know, this was Tyson was the baddest guy on the planet, the king of the heavyweight division. And he goes to fight this guy, Buster Douglas, in Tokyo. I know the newspaper I worked for at the time, Newsday, chose not to send its boxing writer, Wally Matthews, to cover the fight because of deadline issues and the time difference. And it wasn't worth sending because after all, Tyson was going to win. And, of course, he loses and Wally never lets forget that. <laughs> so set, set this up a little bit. You're there. You see this. Uh, you're calling the fight with uh, Larry Merchant and, and Sugar Ray Leonard. What goes through your mind as you're watching, you know, the fight as it develops, and what do you think after when it's over? Well, first of all, the, the dimension of the upset, uh, because of the way we treat betting in sports, uh, you can uh, see it in numerical terms. Uh, Cassius Clay was a 13 to one underdog uh, against Sonny Liston in Miami Beach. Uh, Mike Tyson was anywhere from 36 to one or 42 to one favorite over Douglas in Tokyo. Uh, some places simply wouldn't take the bet. And, uh, and that was because Tyson had been annihilating everybody in the heavyweight division, or at least that was the way it was seen in his big test against Michael Spinks. He had knocked Spinks out in 91 seconds. Uh, so nobody expected that Douglas, who was seen as a sort of, uh, journeyman, he had, uh, he had lost to Tony Tucker. He had beaten Oliver McCall. Those weren't exactly uh, celestial credentials coming in. Nobody considered the possibility that that Mike could have trouble in the fight. And um, it was Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in uh, Korokuen Stadium in Tokyo. There's a crowd of 34,000 people in the arena. And I had never been to a live sports event in Japan, so I did not realize that the Japanese don't emote uh, during a sports event. They sit. They watched quietly. Uh, it was as though you were looking at a crowd at a ballet or an opera. Uh, and then they made no noise whatsoever. So you could hear the slapping of Mike and Buster's shoe soles against the canvas in the ring. And Larry and Ray and I, because of the surrounding atmosphere, were doing commentary as though we were calling a golf tournament. I mean, we were all but whispering as we talked about what was happening in the ring. It was totally different than what would have been the case if we were calling the fight here uh, in the United States. And, um, and you know, it's a colossal upset. But if you watched the first two rounds, it's... It's just a constant repetition of the same thing. That the things that you saw in the first round that Buster had a long jab and could land it, that he brought the right hand over the top and the shorter fighter couldn't see it, and that Tyson didn't really have many answers against all of that, all totally visible. So, you know, by the time uh, Mike is knocked out by Buster in the 10th round. It's just the logical conclusion of something that you've been watching for nine rounds leading up to it. 
Uh, and it just goes to show you that you can never take anything for granted, particularly in boxing. Absolutely. Now, in some ways, I think boxing is one of the most challenging of all sports to do play-by-play, -play, as it's not like you have all the analytics you do in other sports. When that round starts, there's no definable pauses where commentators know to jump in and help you out. At times, you're both doing play-by-play -play and color. Um, how much did watching uh, Don Dumphy and Howard Cosell color the way you announce fights, and how much of an impact did Alex Waldo have on your work? Well, uh, Howard Cosell had no impact on how I called fights because it would, it would be insane to try to channel Cosell. Uh, he was so much his own thing, and anybody attempting to um, borrow from that it would run the risk of self-parody. Dunphy's completely the opposite. Dunphy was, you know, a totally unobtrusive sports commentator. He was there to record what was happening. He did not attempt to impose his personality on uh, the broadcast in any way. And to the degree that I ever had in my head for how to call a fight, it was Don Dunphy. But you mentioned Alex Walla. Alex Wallow was the, the executive in charge of boxing uh, at the moment that I was chosen to go ringside at, at ABC. And we lived about seven or eight blocks away from each other on the Upper East Side. And from the moment that I had agreed that I was going to call fights, Alex would call me at 11 o'clock in the morning and say, I want you here by noon. I would walk up to his apartment and we would sit and watch videotape of boxing for three, four or five hours, pretty constantly in the last couple of months before I called the first fight, which happened to be Tyson uh, against Jesse Ferguson in upstate New York. And Alex taught me how the inside fighter will hold his opponent on the opposite side from the referee so that the referee can't see it. Alex taught me how when a southpaw fights a conventional fighter, um, the advantage goes to the man who can get his front foot outside of the other guy's front foot. He taught me all of the little nuances that you need to know and understand to, to be able to see what's going on in a boxing match. And I know people who've watched boxing for 30, 40, 50 years, but they still haven't mastered the niceties of being able to see what goes on in a fight. So I was incredibly lucky that Alex gave me a sort of master class in all that uh, before I went to upstate New York to, to call that first fight. I would never have become a competent boxing play-by-play -play person or a competent boxing blow-by-blow -blow person if Alex hadn't taken the time to teach me how to do it. And the beauty of all that is that brings us to today, and you're going to be making more great calls as you begin your multi-fight deal on June 19th, Trillo Fight Club at Miami's Lone, again, full circle, Miami Lone Depot Park. Uh, feature both men and women's undisputed world title fights for the first time. Tell us where people can you know, find these fights and, and, and what they can look forward and to. And who you're calling the fights with. Right. So I, I signed a deal with Thriller. Uh, and I, I'll be honest with you, I don't know that much about Thriller. Uh, I know that they have done uh, uh, at least a couple of fights that fall into what I would call the entertainment variants of the sport. Uh, I know that 
I know that I've been hired to do legitimate fights and do blow by blow in all the ways that I've done it in the past. Uh, we're very excited that the first fight I'll be calling on June 19, at least the, the main event, features uh, Teofimo Lopez, who's the Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year, from his historic upset of uh, Vasily Lomachenko, and uh, who showed in the Lomachenko fight that he has the talent to become the next big thing, or one of the next big things. Um, there are very historic and significant fighters in the sport Right now, at this moment, I don't think Americans know or pay enough attention to the greatness of people like uh, Elo Alvarez and Tyson Fury. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm eager to get back into the mix of talking about boxing, being in the discussion and helping people to uh, understand and appreciate all the really good things that are going on in boxing right now. Jim, we, listen, we could spend, I mean, we didn't even touch now, on yeah. baseball. We didn't touch on, you know, you awarding the Super Bowl trophy. We didn't, you know, touch on, on you. Boxing with versus NASCAR. MMA, all the other things we want to you talk about. speaking to the president during a NASCAR presentation. We could literally fill well, 20 you, you, shows. You just have to, you have to bring me back at some other point. <laughs> uh, listen, done, done. My, you, wife just gave me, my wife just gave me something really important. Log into Fight TV to access a live stream of the fight on your computer or download the Fight app to watch Triller Fight Club on your phone or gaming device. And there, I have, okay. uh, I've done my duty in establishing how it is that people can tune in on June 19th. Awesome. Jim, thanks so much for your time. More importantly, thanks, as I mentioned, the soundtrack of my sports world, um, you know, it just ABC's wild world of sports, all the great events you, you've covered. It's actually been a thrill for us to have you on tonight. And I, trust me, will take you up on the offer to have you back. No question about it. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed talking to you. Awesome. The one and only Jim Lampley.